If you have your Bible, let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking in verses 8 through 10 today. If you don't have a Bible, it's on page 976 in the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible at all, if that's why you didn't bring one, is because you just don't have one, uh, then please take that one. It's our gift to you. And uh, you may say to yourself, well, I thought we were going through Romans. And yes, we are. And we're taking, it's funny, we're taking a week away from Romans because uh, it, it's, it's Reformation Sunday. Now, Romans is a great place to be for Reformation Sunday, um, but we're doing something just a little bit different. If you don't know what Reformation Sunday is or uh, why we're doing this, well, uh, January, it's not January, let me wake up just real quick, okay? October 31st, 1517 was the day when Martin Luther went and nailed his document called the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. He was a Catholic monk who had begun to study the scriptures and to notice that there was a lot in the scriptures that didn't quite match up with what the Catholic Church was teaching. And that was a a protest, especially against the sale for money of indulgences. Uh, If you've ever read the 95 Theses, you know that Martin Luther at that point wasn't quite what we would call reformed yet. Uh, He he was still in a lot of ways, um, you know, back in some, some old ways of thinking, and yet that was something that God used to really, really kick off what we call the Protestant Reformation. And so we kind of mark that around October 31st. It's, it's not like nobody ever thought about the difference between the Catholic Church and the Bible before that day. There was a lot of things leading up to that. The reason that it caught on is not because Martin Luther was such a dynamic personality. It's because the Bible started to go out. And people could start to look at the Bible and see what the Bible taught and say, wait a second, this ought to be our authority. And so as as we go to uh, this passage today, well, really the reason that we're going to this passage is because we see the Bible as having our final say in what is our source of authority. In fact, that's, that's what, what we call the first of the five solas of the Reformation. It's called sola scriptura. It's a Latin term that means scripture alone, and it's kind of the whole reason that there was a Protestant Reformation. It's because people opened up their Bibles and said, wait a second, this is the Word of God. This carries authority. And when we say Scripture alone, we don't mean that Scripture is the only thing we ever read. We don't mean Scripture is the only thing that we ever take seriously. But we do mean that Scripture is unique in that it is the Word of God and not the Word of man. It gets the final say in what it is that we should believe and what it is that we should practice. Anytime that, that somebody asks me, well, you know, I, I, you're a Baptist pastor and I'm Catholic, what's the difference? I get that question a lot. And I always say, well, there's, there's two main differences. And one is the difference that's the reason why there's a difference. And that's because we have two different sources of authority. In the Catholic Church, the one that gets the final say is the official tradition of the Catholic Church. The, 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 the official teaching of the Catholic Church is put on an official basis there on the same level as Scripture, which really means that it ends up on a higher level in Scripture. It's what gets the final say and what should be understood, the final say in the interpretation of this book. But we, as Protestants, uh, especially, well, at least as believing Protestants, uh, we look at the Bible and we say, this gets the final say. 
we don't throw out all of our traditions. We love our statement of faith that's hundreds of years old. We love all kinds of things that are tradition, but we look at the Bible and we say, this gets the final say in what it is that we should believe and do. So that's the reason why there's a difference. But then the fact that there is a difference in what is our source of authority leads us into some details of what it is that we believe. And that's the next thing I tell people when they say, Baptist pastor, I'm Catholic, what's the difference? I say, well, here's the main difference. How do you get your sins forgiven and go to heaven? That's a pretty important question. That's a pretty important question. I I, I remember uh, we were out in Keyport not too long ago, and, and one of the gentlemen who... Uh, who we got to talk to at the prayer table there, was telling me that he, he is a, a, a chaplain for uh, a, like a police group and was telling me, oh yeah, we, we, we're non-denominational. I was like, well, okay, you're non-denominational. Where, where do you go to church? And he said, oh, I'm a Catholic, but it's kind of all the same. And I was like, well, how do you get your sins forgiven? I think that might be different. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's different. That's a big difference right there. Okay, how do you get your sins forgiven? How do you go to heaven? Like that's that's all. <laughs> like why why are we worried about anything else? If that's the difference, eternal life or not eternal life? Well, that that comes down to what we call the other five solas of the Reformation, which we're going to kind of see in our scripture today. We're we're going to the scripture because of sola scripture. We want to know what does the word of God say, but what it's going to say to us is that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Those are those other solas of the Reformation. Sola gratia, grace, sola fide, faith, soli, uh, solus Christus, Christ alone, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. And we're going to see all of that here in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. So let's read that, starting in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Mm, it's good to go to the scripture for this. You know what Luther said when he went, uh, he was reflecting on uh, how the Protestant Reformation was going, how it was that the gospel was becoming clear and spreading and just catching like wildfire across Europe. Well, what he said about that, it's actually in your a quote in your bulletin today. He said, I opposed indulgences and all the papists. By the way, don't call your family members papists. Just, But that's what they said. All the papists. But never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank, the word did everything. It did everything. So that's what we need. We need the Word to show us the truth. And the first truth that it's going to show us here in this passage is that sinners are saved by God's grace and not by our merit. Sinners are saved by God's grace and not by our merit. It says in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The first word in that verse is for. It's for, which kind of reminds us, hey, there's some other verses around here. 
And since it's been about nine years since the last time we were in this passage and went through Ephesians, maybe we should remind ourselves of this a little bit. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 2, you're going to see, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It doesn't say, hey, you sinners, you were half dead. You were a little bit alive. You were a pretty good person, but you accidentally slipped into some things sometimes. You got in with the wrong crowd. No, it says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And this is a universal statement. He's not saying to the Ephesian church, some of you who were especially bad were dead in your sins. He's not saying to the Ephesian church, some of you who did not grow up in believing families were dead in your trespasses and sins. He says to every redeemed sinner, before you came to faith in Christ, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. Where, where was that coming from? Well, the course of this world, following the course of this world, looking around and saying, here's what's normal, I'll do it. That's deadly. Following the prince of the power of the air. Satan presenting temptations to get followed after by sinners. And not just that, but among whom we all once lived, verse 3, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. He says this is where sinners start out. You can't just blame it on the world, although the world has a big draw. You can't just blame it on Satan, although Satan has very crafty ways. But he says this comes even from our own minds, from our own flesh. He says this is the course of mankind, the rest of mankind, meaning all who are not yet redeemed by Christ, and even us before we were redeemed by Christ, are by nature children of wrath. We are totally depraved by nature. That's the reality, is that every part of who we are, from the beginning of our existence, because of the sin of Adam that we've inherited, and the sin nature, every part of who we are from the beginning is sinful. That doesn't mean as sinful as it could possibly be. That's only by God's grace, though. But it does mean every part of who we are is affected by sin, and all of us came into this world as children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The Bible is not teaching that there are good people. It's teaching that there are only bad people. When we, when we say, you must be born again, when Jesus said that, he was essentially saying to everybody, including this extremely religious polite-speaking man in front of him named Nicodemus, saying to him, you're a dead man unless I make you new. That is total depravity. When you realize that, you realize there is no kind of person who just in themselves is going to go to heaven. There is no kind of person who in themselves is going to choose God. They're, 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 we, we came into this world totally depraved, in love with sin, and, and not just kind of like a little bit, but dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. You know what that leaves as far as mankind's ability to save himself? Zero. Zero ability. You know, if, if there were like 
0.01% of mankind who were just barely good enough to save themselves, Jesus coming and dying for sinners would be pointless. It would be pointless. But you were dead like the rest of mankind by nature, children of wrath. Well, then how can we be saved? He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace, you have been saved. It's by grace. Do you remember, do you remember that great story of how Jesus came up to the tomb of his friend Lazarus who had died? You remember how he brought him to life? He came up to the tomb and said, Lazarus, I've already asked five other dead people today, and they all said no, but would you please come out? No, that's not what he said. He walked up to one tomb of one dead man and said, Lazarus, come out. You know what he was doing there? He was graciously raising him from the dead, and that's the picture we have in Ephesians 2 of what God does to us in a way that matters much more than our physical life in this world is that we, in our souls, were dead in our trespasses. We were by nature children of wrath. How is it that we come alive? How is it that we're saved? You can't just lie there dead and decide to come to life. It has to be a gracious work of God. And that's what it says. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then we come to the verse that we're in right now. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So that's the four, and it says it's by grace. What is grace? Well, it's undeserved favor. You could go deeply into the definition of grace, but I'll just say that that's what it is undeserved favor. It's that God has given us the good things that we don't deserve. It's undeserved, meaning that it doesn't have anything to do with what kind of people we are. It doesn't have anything to do with God looking down the tunnel of time to see who was going to be the kind of person who would believe, because there was no such sinner. It has nothing to do with whether or not we were a little bit more inclined toward this good thing or that good thing. No, Jesus says there is no one good but God alone. And so how, do, how does he decide who to save? How does he decide who to give grace to? Well, it's grace. It's grace according to the counsel of his will. It said back in chapter 1 of, of Ephesians. You can read that another time. But it's just pure grace with zero human merit, zero at all. There is nothing. When we, when we walk across the stage of heaven and get our, get our sash, I don't know what it's going to be like. On that, on that day, the, the resurrection day, when, when we stand before the throne of Christ and he publicly declares us who believe to be righteous, there's not going to be a single part of that where we say, congratulations me, I did it. (laughs) It's going to be 100%. What am I doing here? This is amazing grace. Amazing grace. In myself, I deserve to be thrown out of here. I deserve to be cast into the lake of fire for my sin. I was dead in my sin. 
I've only been made alive by the grace of God. It is by grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. Imagine that you owe a debt. Maybe you do owe a debt. But imagine that the debt that you owe is for the entire amount of your net worth plus an extra $5 million. What are you going to do? You may take time to let the reality of that sink in, and you may start working to do everything that you can to, to pay off the debt. Now, a lot of you guys would just say, well, I'd, I'd go see a bankruptcy lawyer. <sighs> Imagine there's no bankruptcy lawyer. Imagine you, you, all there is is a debtor's prison. Nothing you can do. Have to pay it or else. Well, what are you going to do? You can't do anything. You can try and you can try and you can try, but you're never going to dig your way out of that hole. Well, then imagine that somebody comes up to you and tells you, I paid your debt. You say, what do you mean you paid my debt? How, how do you know about my debt? Well, I, I paid your debt, and here's the paperwork. Here's who you owed. Here's how much you owed. Here's the, here's the bank transfer. I did it. I paid your debt. Not only did I do that, but I gave you 100 times as much as you owed. I put in your account free and clear. What are you going to say then? Amazing. Amazing. The situation before a sinner comes to faith in Christ, before a sinner is born again, is much, much more serious than that. So much more serious than any kind of financial debt. So much more serious than any kind of trouble you could be in with somebody in this world. We owe a sin debt to God in ourselves, in our flesh, in our sin that we can't pay. The only path forward for us apart from Christ is to do the best we can to knock everything off our bucket list in this life and then to be sent to the fires of hell, rightly so, where we would spend an eternity never able to pay off the debt of how serious it is to sin even once against the holy God. And we haven't sinned just once, have we? We've done things in our actions, we've done things in our words, and we've done things in our hearts. There's no way we could pay this debt, but you know what God does? In Christ, in Christ, He has paid it all. And he offers it freely as a gift. A gift. He says it is by grace you've been saved. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you know a gift is not something that you are supposed to repay? It's not just that you, you, you can't repay the gift of God. You're, you're not supposed to. You are literally not supposed to try to repay God. You know, when, when we give our kids Christmas gifts and they open them up and they're so happy, we don't say to them, okay, now it's time to start working to pay that off. In fact, if they did that, we'd say, what's wrong with you? I'm happy to give you this. We'll see how Christmas goes, guys. Okay. <laughs> 
But we say, I'm happy to see you give, give this. It, it would be insulting for you to say, oh no, I have to pay you for it. Well, God gives salvation from our sins as a free gift in Jesus Christ that's to be received. And how is it to be received? Well, it's to be received by faith. That's the second point if you're following along on the back. Sinners saved through faith, not our works. So he says in verse 8 that we are saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And then I want to emphasize the first little part of verse 9, not a result of works. So you have grace as opposed to merit, you know, being good enough. But then you have faith as opposed to works, what we could do, what we could offer to God. Every other religious system... I should say every system of religion that humans have invented as opposed to the gospel of God, which is in the scriptures, every human invention of religion involves being a good enough person or doing enough good things or doing enough religious things to earn spiritual rewards. But that's not the case for actual salvation in Jesus Christ. See, this, this is the crux of it. How do we get our sins forgiven? Is it by earning merit? Is it by religious actions that would then store up some kind of a treasury of indulgences for us or something like that? No, it, it is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John Calvin said this. He said, In what way do men receive that salvation which is offered to them by the hand of God? The answer is by faith. And hence he concludes that nothing is connected with our own. Connected with it is our own. If on the part of God it is grace alone, and if we bring nothing but faith, which strips us of all commendation, it follows that salvation does not come from us. Or a better way to put it is Romans chapter 4, verse 5. To the one who does not work but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Wow. Amazing. Even the thief hanging on a cross, no opportunity for good works for that guy. No understanding of, of the depths of theology. And yet, what, what, what's he doing? He's trusting in the Savior who was dying there on the cross next to him. And that's us. Anytime a sinner comes to faith in Christ... That's what it is. It's not saying, here's how strong my faith is, God. Now take me. It's saying, I see Christ. Christ is my Savior. Christ is my Lord. That's what faith is. We have to, we have to be careful and not present faith as the cause of our forgiveness, of our justification. God is the cause. God's grace is the cause. But the way that He gives it is through what we call the instrument of our faith. When God is going to save somebody, when God is going to give somebody His grace to save us from our sins, He does it by way of faith. Faith alone. Not any works that we could provide, but by faith. And we have to define faith, because faith has become a shorthand for so many different ideas. Those of you who have been around a while, you've heard me define faith a lot. Maybe you heard me define faith last week. Maybe you say to yourself, 
I can't stay in this church because he just keeps talking about what faith is. Okay, I'm going to keep talking about it, all right? Faith, that word is tossed around so much. Some people, when they say faith, they mean religion. And they'll speak of different religions as faiths. It's kind of funny, I actually got my very first, after we've been in town for more than 10 years, I finally got my very first invitation to the interfaith group. And I, I, I thanked them for the invitation, but I'm not going to go. <laughs> you know why? Because it, it's, it's not multiple faiths. It, it's, it's multiple religions. And what faith is, it, it's in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to gather together and plan a Thanksgiving service with people who are worshiping different gods, well, what does the Bible say? What does Christ have to do with Belial? We can't get together and pretend like just because we are, quote, people of faith, that we actually have something in common in those faiths. It's just not the case. By by faith, we're talking about faith in one and only one person whose name is Jesus, and all other faiths are not faith. In fact, they're they're works-based, every single one of them. They're not faith-based. They are based on how good of a person and how much good stuff and how many religious things can you do in order to prove that you're worth it to God? And boy, that is not faith. That's works. Some people, when they say faith, they mean something like a psychological trick. Like, I see in front of my eyes something that I'm going to say I don't believe. Or I'm going to say I believe something that I really don't actually believe, but if I can psych myself into it, then maybe I have faith. That's not faith. That's self-deception. That is not faith. It's, it's irrational. Actual faith in Jesus is not a self-deception to think, well, I don't think He's really my Savior, but if I can just really, really try hard and pretend that I think that, well then, uh, nope, that's being deceived. Another, another way that faith gets thrown around, and I think I probably hear this one more than any others, just when, when I'm talking to, to people who don't know the gospel. A lot of times when they say, well, I have faith, what they mean is, I believe that there is a God, and I believe that as I make it through life, that He's the one who's helping me. That He's the one who's carrying me through. So many people, when they say, yeah, I have faith, that's what they mean, is like, there's some invisible force that's going to help me get through the challenges of life. But as I said last week, that's not faith. That's a rabbit's foot. That's a good luck charm. So what is faith? Well, faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone for our salvation as He is offered to us in the gospel. There's three elements of true faith that were kind of laid out clearly by a guy named Martin Luther, who I already talked about earlier. And that's knowledge, affirmation, and personal trust. Without all three of those things, faith is not faith. You have to have knowledge of the truth. You have to know what I think I already tried to tell you clearly in the sermon, which is that God is holy, that we are sinners against God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're hopeless in that state of sin in ourselves. But that God has made the way of salvation in the person of Christ. That He is God in the flesh 
who lived perfectly for us, died in our place for our sins, rose from the dead, is Lord, is coming back again to raise the dead and to rule here for all eternity. You need to know that Jesus is the one who died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He rose from the dead on the third day, and, and you need to trust in that. You need to respond to that with faith. You, you can know all of those things. God, man, Christ's response. God is holy. Man is a sinner. Christ is the way of salvation. The proper response is to repent and believe. You do need to know those things, but if you just know those things, that's not faith. You also need to affirm those things. You need to have the kind of faith that is actual believing, which is saying, not only do I know those things in my head, but I actually know that those things are true. I know that God is holy. I know that I'm a sinner before God. I know that Christ is the only way. I know that, that anyone who repents and believes in him will be saved. I know all of those things. You need to actually affirm the facts. But even if you know the facts and affirm the facts, that is still not faith in the way that the Bible is talking about when it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Because when he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is not just like kind of giving Jesus a side eye saying, yes, I affirm all of those facts. They are true about Jesus. It is trusting yourself, believing upon Him. Trusting in Him. You must have personal trust in the Savior. That's the third part of what faith is. Not just knowing the facts, not just affirming the facts, but personal trust in Jesus Christ Himself. To place your life into His hands. I remember when... uh, these little bitty stairs over here by the piano were installed. There's just two steps. Some of you from where you're sitting, you can't even see them. That's okay. You don't have to get up and look right now. But I remember thinking, yeah, that's going to be a good thing. It's going to be a, a good way to get up to that part of the platform from over there. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard about it. I, I know about those steps. And then, and then I heard, well, the, the carpenter's here, and he's made them, and he's installing them. And I've, I'd had no doubt that that was true. In fact, as I, as I knew that that was true, I, I knew, hey, that, that carpenter seems like he's well-trusted by our trustees, and, and I think that he's going to do a good job, and those are going to be good steps. But there's a big difference between just saying, yes, these are, these are good steps over here, and actually saying to myself, okay, I'm going to step on it, right? There's a difference between standing right there and saying, those look nice, I believe that they will hold me up and actually standing here with my weight on these things. That, that's the difference between affirming the facts about the gospel and actually having personal trust in Jesus Christ. You must personally trust yourself. Stand your soul upon Jesus. That's what it means when it says in the Bible, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believing in Him as the one who is the one and only solution to your greatest problem, which is being a sinner before God, eternally condemned, and rightly so. That trusting in Him, He will forgive you because He died and bled on the cross for for your sins and rose from the dead, and that He will give you eternal life. Now there's going to be a lot of other things involved, a lot of other things that you're going to believe and, and understand and a lot of ways that this is going to work out in your life, but that's the central thing. 
That is the central thing, that you need to be saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Then also, this passage tells us that sinners are saved for God's glory, not for our boasting. That's what it says. It says, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, verse 8. And then verse 9, not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Why is it not of yourselves? Why is it not our own doing? Why is it not a result of, of works? Why is it the gift of God? Why is it by God's grace alone and not our merit and by faith alone and not through our works? Well, the answer is given right there, so that no one may boast. Just in case we, we started to get the impression that we're saving ourselves by believing, he brings it in right here and says, no, this is not of yourself. Otherwise, you could boast. Every single bit of this salvation is purely the grace of God. All of the aspects of what it is that God puts into saving sinners, all the aspects that we don't understand and all the ones that we do, things like election, that God chose to save us from before the foundation of the world, things like predestination, that he arranged from eternity past that all things would work together for our good so that we would be saved as he had preplanned. Things like effectual calling where he steps in and takes the, the finished work of Jesus on the cross and applies it to our hearts by the Holy Spirit so, so that we can be born again, as he says. Even the step before that, that Jesus came and particularly saved particular people on the cross, knowing us by name, loving us, dying for our sins in an effectual way. Regeneration, making us new in Christ, justification, which is where he has pardoned all of our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight. Adoption is part of our salvation, that he receives us into his family, gives us all the rights and privileges of being a child of God. Sanctification, which continues right now, no matter how long you have been a believer, where he makes us more and more able to die to our sin and to live to Christ in righteousness. And glorification. This is not you getting the glory. It's that we're going to go to heaven with the glorified Christ. It, it, that, that full enjoyment of God that we're going to have for all eternity. All of this, every bit of our salvation is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one may boast. And get this, when it says this is not of us, it is the gift of God. That includes what it says by faith. Even that faith that he talks about by which we're saved, that faith is said there to be part of the gift of God. This is held up by other scriptures as well. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith just in case you thought that you are the founder of your own faith. No, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Or Philippians 1.29, which says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should believe in him. It's been granted to you. Even the fact that we believe, that's not something out of ourselves. 
And I said it, I said it before, I'm going to say it again. You were not the kind of person who would believe the gospel. Because there is no such sinner. It's by God's grace. It is the gift of faith. And why is that? Why would God do it this way? Well, he says, here's the reason, so that no one may boast. It's so that everything would be to God's glory alone. Or as if you're one of those fancy people who likes the Latin phrase that we say about the Reformation, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. You know where our boasting is? It's not in ourselves, it's in God. And in the cross of Christ. It's in Christ alone that we glory. As he says in Romans 3, verse 27, what becomes of our boasting? Context there is if we're going to be saved by faith, or excuse me, saved through faith alone, well then who's going to brag? It's not by something we do. It's by trusting in the one who did, whose name is Jesus. What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a lot of wor- law of works? No, but by the law of faith For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And also, these verses teach us that sinners are saved in Christ Jesus and not in another mediator. You see this just a little bit in verse 10 where it says, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. I'm going to get to the rest of that verse, but before I get to the rest of that verse, I just want to point out what it's saying here. This is not just kind of like a general grace or a general faith or a general salvation. It's said here to specifically be given to us in a person, in Christ Jesus. Not in Christ Jesus plus another person either. Not a little bit Jesus, a little bit you. Not a little bit Jesus, not 99% Jesus and 1% you. Not 99.9% Jesus and 0.05% you and 0.05% the saints in heaven interceding for you. None of that. It is 100% in Christ Jesus. As we're talking about this on Reformation Sunday, I want to read you something that you may not realize is in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. It says this, I copied and pasted from the Vatican website. It says, Mary's role in relation to the church and to all humanity goes still further. In a wholly singular way, she cooperated by her obedience, faith, hope, and burning charity in the Savior's work of restoring supernatural life to souls. For this reason, she is a mother to us in the order of grace. Thus, this motherhood of Mary in the order of grace continues Taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside the saving office, but by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Therefore, the Blessed Virgin is invoked in the church under the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says something different. 
It says in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, not others. Or it says in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's in Christ alone. We have been created in Christ. And let's do look at the rest of verse 10 as well. That we're sinners who are saved for good works that God gets the credit for. So it says in verse 10, We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There are some who accuse the biblical gospel of being just like this, this get-out-of-hell-free card where now you can just sin all you want to. In fact, this accusation is not new. Uh, the Apostle Paul was being accused of teaching this. He was, it was being said of him that he was going around teaching this, this gospel that let people uh, sin that grace may abound. And you know what he says? By no means. By no means. And so we, we have to know absolutely 100% for sure that nothing about our good works or our merit has anything to do with our being saved. Our good works don't contribute a single thing to our status before God. When we trust in Christ, having not cleaned up our lives yet, bringing nothing good to God, when we trust in Christ, repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He has completely taken our sin on Himself put it away in one sacrifice for all time on the cross. And he has completely granted us the standing of perfect Son of God in the sight of God because we are united to Jesus, created in Christ Jesus, united to Christ in that newness of life. So when we talk about being forgiven of our sins, there is nothing about our good works that contributes in any way to that. So why would we ever do anything good? Because we have been saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's why our lives would change. When, when you know Christ, this is a no-brainer. When you're standing outside the gospel, evaluating and critiquing it, then you're going to have all kinds of reasons why all, well, that's why all these Christians are hypocrites. But when you know Christ, you say, I've been forgiven. I've got a new life. Nothing I do from now on is going to possibly bring me no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I am now free to walk away from my sin and to live for the Savior who has redeemed me by His blood. That's what it actually looks like when somebody knows Christ. And so that's what, what he makes clear here. When we say that we are, it's not a result of works... It's by faith and not a result of works. The Bible never says that Christians don't do any good works. It just says that our salvation is not a result of works, and now that we're saved, we're free to walk in good works for the first time ever. Because everything that we did before that was not by faith. You remember what we saw in Romans last time? Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. But now that we have faith in Christ, 
we're finally free to do things that actually please God. Amazing, isn't it? He, we're finally free to do these good works which it says God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Are we doing these things so that we can say, God, okay, you've brought me from super sinner to zero, and now I'm going to earn a lot of merit. No, he brought us from super sinner to 100% riches of eternity given to us free of charge, grace. We're going to walk now in freedom. You ever watch the figure skaters in the Olympics? I know that's not going to happen for a little while now, but we used to watch those when we were a kid and, and we'd get just so excited, you know, oh, she's doing so awesome. I can't believe she did that triple and that triple and oh, this is great. And you're just waiting to see after the performance, you're going to see how is she going to get rated. And, and every once in a while, you'd see it come up straight sixes. And, and everybody just cheers. Oh, it's amazing. Do you know what God has done for us? Before we ever put on our skates, He comes to us in Christ, wakes us up, gives us the gift of faith, makes us born again, and holds up for us straight sixes. Says, perfect score. And then we get to go on the ice. And then we get to do the performance knowing that even if we fall down, our perfect score is not going away. It's already been settled. This is the thing. Every other religion, you're waiting to see how good you did to see what your score is going to be. But with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, our score is Christ. We've already been declared righteous in Him, and now we get to live it out in freedom. That's what we're talking about here. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Guys, when it says His workmanship, it means God's the one who did this. God, God's the one who saves us. God's the one who sets us up on a new life. That's 100% God. Even when we jump in and start doing good works, it's still 100% God. It says in 2 Corinthians 9.8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And I'll just sum that up by saying every good work that you do is a gift of God's grace. That's what it said there. And these good works happen because we've been recreated in Christ. Where he says his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, that word created, that's a word in the Bible that's just the thing for what God does. People don't create in the way that the Bible is talking about creating. You, you can get creative. You, you can have you know, what we would call creative ways of taking ideas and designs and art and all, all kinds of stuff and putting them together. But you know what God does when he creates? He doesn't like mesh together other ideas into something interesting. He takes what was not and brings it into existence perfectly. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And when we come to faith in Christ, we are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. We've been created in Christ Jesus We've been created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, according to Ephesians 4.24. 
And what, what does he have for us in that new creation? Well, he has for us to walk in good works. Good works that he has planned. Good works because God prepared them beforehand. Even Did you know that every time you think of something good to do, God thought of it first? Did you know you have never come up with a plan for something good to do that wasn't God's plan before it was yours? And did you know that every responsibility of good things that you must do that weren't your plan, that maybe you would choose not to do if you had the choice, the responsibilities that are on your plate at your job or in your home, do you know why those are the plans for the good things that you need to do even when you don't feel like it? It's because of God. Every good thing that we can do is something that God prepared beforehand, it says, so that we should walk in them. And it's our job as Christians to be zealous for good works. That's what it said in Titus 2.14. We prayed this this morning. That Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, the things that God has put in front of us for us to do, when you say to yourself, I just cannot believe how much there is that I need to get done at work this week. I cannot believe how much there is that I'm going to need to do in raising my family and having an orderly household this week. I can't believe how much work there is to do in reaching this lost and dying world around me with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Or, I never thought of that good thing. I'm excited about every good thing that God puts in front of us to do, we can be zealous for. You can't do every good thing you possibly think of. As human beings, you've got to remember we're finite. You can't do every good work. We have to pick and choose. There are trade-offs. But here's the point that he's talking about. That as we walk in honor of God, all the credit is to God. And that ought to inspire us even more. If we're thinking to ourselves, well, I'm going to figure out how to do so that I can get a good enough performance. And, you know, you, you may or may not be zealous in certain ways. You may let certain things drop. But, you know, when you realize God made the path of goodness for me, even my good works are a gracious gift from God that he thought of for me to walk in. You're free. You're free, and you can be zealous about things that you never thought you'd be zealous about. You can get excited about doing stuff that you never thought you'd get excited about that was always just drudgery to you because you say, wait a second, God has set me free and forgiven my sins in Jesus Christ, and he has given me these good things to do, and I want to do them out of honor to my God who gave them to me. But even our works, even the good works that we do, what it's saying there in verse 10 is that even those are to the glory of God alone. They're not to the glory of us. They're to the glory of God alone. Ezekiel 36 says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what do we have here? Well, we have here, as we look at the Scripture alone as our source of faith, 
what it is that we should believe and do, we see that salvation of sinners is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and for the glory of God alone. Unbelieving sinner, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we have good news here today, which is that God saves sinners just like you, completely free of charge, with nothing that you have to bring to him today at all, but simply by trusting in the finished work of Jesus on the cross for you. And he will save you, make you new, give you eternal life as a free gift. Believer in Jesus, don't say to yourself, I already know that stuff. Why is the preacher preaching the gospel again? Doesn't he know that this is a room full of Christians who already know the gospel? Well, it's because if you start to get away from the gospel, you are going to lose your footing. (laughs) We need to not say, okay, I got the gospel down. No, I'm moving on to other things. We need to be deeply rooted in the grace of God every day so that we are then free to walk in the paths that he's laid out. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you have uh, laid out here for us in the scriptures. We thank you for the person of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, who has come to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. God, we we thank you for uh, the recovery of the gospel that happened 500 years ago. And Lord, we thank you for recoveries of the gospel that keep on happening in various places and times even today. Father, I pray for churches that have walked away from this gospel. Lord, we know that that usually doesn't happen by any kind of a, a specific intentional decision at a specific time, but just by neglect. God, I pray that you would bring reformation into those places, into those churches, that they would rest in your grace alone, for your glory alone. Father, we have spoken here as, as is expected when we're talking about things having to do with the Reformation and, and the gospel that's different from our Roman Catholic neighbors. Lord, we, we, it's normal for us to talk about the differences of faith that we have between us and them. I pray that you would grow our love for them. I pray that you would um, let that love flow out in a, uh, a sharing of truth in love of this saving gospel of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that you would open more and more hearts of those who haven't really considered the scriptures to consider them and to submit to this beautiful saving truth that's here of Jesus Christ. Uh, God, I pray that you would save sinners even today, even here, even right now. And I pray that those of us who know Christ would celebrate this gospel as we seek to live in the good works that you've prepared beforehand. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.